Hello everyone and welcome to Bring Your Own Blockbuster Pod. We've just been having a, a raucous time off air and we're going to bring lots of that energy to you today. I'm joined so. as ever by our behemoth of the podcast scene, Jack <laughs> William Hussey. <laughs> How are you, sir? I'm very good, thank you. Fellow behemoth. How are you doing, mate? <laughs> yeah. I was thinking every week I'm going to just try and come up with a different synonym for like gar- gargantuan and stuff like that. A uh, uh, monster on the mic. There you go. No, that's not quite. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. I need that to makes, think about this. Makes you sound like a sort of seventies MC. <laughs> oh, God. That's oh uh, yeah. No, let's not, let's not go there. Okay, dark bum. Big question to start off with: <laughs> Have you made it to the cinema this week? Have I made it to the cinema this week? Yes, I have made it to the cinema this week. I saw uh, what's love got to do with it. Um, with Lily James, yeah. Any good? So, you having it? it perfectly acceptable. Um, a typical kind of British Richard Curtis esque rom com with a kind of you know a, a deeper message in part, talking about different cultures and people having to view things through the eyes of somebody else and not just kind of from the outside if you like um you know we're talking not arranged marriages as they're very quick to kind of dispel within the film um assisted marriages and so on and so forth so it's it's you know it's it's absolutely fine i think it's kind of it's maybe one of those films that's quite good for especially People of our, and I don't mean to sound really patronising in this way, but people maybe of our parents' age who maybe are more prone to being, shall we say, less tolerant of different cultures and such. And it's a way of viewing people's differences through a nice, comfortable, non-confrontational, liberal lens that nobody's going to feel their nose put out of joint by. If you get what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I know that, so. that no one's going to leave that. Well, well, I didn't agree with that. Hmm. that well, I, I don't nonsense. like being told that I've done something wrong as a white person, <laughs> you know? Right. Can't say anything. I don't like having to introspect. Yeah, right. Oh, lovely. So. Well, I, 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 do you know what the main thing with that is? Is, is when you get... Um, when you go to the cinema, for me, the, the the big thing, if I come away begrudging having the time taken from me, that's a bad. Even if you were just to, to, to rank it by films that are acceptable or not acceptable, if I come away and I don't feel like you've just robbed two hours of my life, <laughs> yeah. then that's that's good enough for me as, as a jumping off point. Um, who who chose You chose film last week. I did. Which Pulp was? Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Oh, baby beautiful beautiful and why did you choose it i chose pulp fiction because i would say when i was growing up uh i pretty much idolized quentin tarantino he is one of the main reasons why i got into actually wanting to make movies to write them to go and pursue a film degree and so on and so forth you know, like it's not because of him that I love film and I love cinema, but he definitely was as a kind of teenage boy growing up in the noughties, if you like, looking back on like, you know, his kind of Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. 
like Kill Bill coming out when I was like 17, sneaking into the cinema to see Kill Bill. Do you know what I mean? Did you actually, did you do Hope, the sort of creeping that try I not get ID'd? Yeah, because I still, because I'm, and I still think today I'm kind of baby faced, even at 38 oh, years 100%. of age. Do you know what I mean? So if you imagine me at 17, I was still kind of like, I was like, hot. and remember how scary it was trying to yeah. sneak into the yeah, cinema yeah. back then? How scary. Make the adrenaline rush. Big time. Big time. Mate, it was so, such a rush. Trying to get through at my local cinema, which is a Galleria, trying to get through the the Galleria in Hatfield, which is was an Odeon, might be a view now. It, you, yeah. There's a big sort of grand staircase, and the people with the ticket who took tickets stood at the top of the te- at the top of the staircase. It almost felt like that '90s gladiators game pyramid, where yeah. the gladiators <laughs> would stand on the steps, and you'd have to try and run past them without getting caught and push the button at the top. I, I genuinely used to feel that it felt like Everest getting past that. But once you were through, oh, dreamy, absolutely dreamy. World was yours. <laughs> it so really good. was a real world. You felt, like you say, you were like king when you were like, I got into another, do you know, one of my other really ones I was really happy with, I think I was about 13 and I got into the Matrix and that was a oh, 15 because biggie, I'd already biggie. I'd already tried previously and not gotten in. Can I see your ID, please? And that moment is... That, do you know what I mean? The that, second they say that to you, yeah. you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm going to prison forever. You know, <laughs> like... That's that. That's the... the uh, are those trainers moment, isn't it? <laughs> of the cinema. <laughs> You're just like, oh no. And also the idea of going to the cinema with, uh, uh, or maybe on a date, who at that point, as a straight white guy, girls often looked about 10 years older than me. The panic of going with a girl who got in and then turned around to be like, you can come in, but your mate looks about nine, so he's not coming into this 15. <laughs> the climb down, man. I honestly... It, it's, can I, can I just say, Ben, in, in, in that equation, I was the mate. <laughs> like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, I wasn't the one on Puberty the date. Like <laughs> I was the third wheel. <laughs> I was always like, oh, <laughs> fuck me. I've got to bring... Got to bring him along. <laughs> and I'm Hi not guys. even getting in. Yeah, and I'm there with the popcorn and the sweets. <laughs> yeah, banging on about the popcorn. Like the director's <laughs> back catalogue and all that type of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Oh, actually, I saw this one moment that was echoed in a video game. And, you know, and they're like, oh, Do you know what's man. so funny? I've now just got an image of, of, of you sat next to two people just copping off while you're sat there glued to the screen, devouring popcorn. Absolutely loving it. Like patting my mate like, hey, look, you know. <laughs> Look what's happening. He's like dodging guys, the bullets. Guys, you, you're missing the best scene. Yeah. Oh, you don't care. Losers. Good. Good. Oh, God. How do we do it? Do you know what? We get in so much trouble when we come off these pods because our, our producer, Purdy, just basically is like, you two need to stop chatting so much BS at the top. And already we're <laughs> so in deep on some nonsense. Um, right, whose turn is it to, to do spoilers in courage? It's me, isn't it? To yeah, is see you. if I so, can somehow break this down. So I do need to apologize because like, we have this 60 seconds spoilers in courage. My uh, spoilers in courage whiplash, what, what was the what I think was the it came in four and a half minutes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. <laughs> well. No longer. Oh, man. I've That's got so good. this. Uh, let's have a look. Right. I've got a stopwatch on. 
Uh, shall I give you a count? Shall I give you a count in, mate? And then we yeah, can go. Yeah, can you give me a count in? I'm going to try and go a bit meta with this. I'm going to try and go a bit sort of like outside okay. the box because I just okay. think there's no way that I can get it all in in 60 seconds, but we'll give it a go. Okay. Three and a two and a one. Okay, so Pulp Fiction is essentially three interwoven storylines told in three very different short stories. So the film begins with Tim Roth playing a character called Pumpkin <laughs> alongside... What a great name for a character. Alongside Amanda Plummer, who plays Honey Bunny, and they're holding up a diner. And basically, what we watch unfold over the course of the film is three stories that start at three different points on the timeline and they all kind of intersect centrally sort of centrally themed around the idea of two hitmen needing to return a suitcase to their big mafia boss Marcellus Wallace um, and essentially what you see is how these hitmen come into contact with different people who challenge them in different ways um, Samuel L. Jackson John Travolta the hitmen you've got Quint like, I mean, I do you know that what? Was that, was just, that was good. That was ridiculous. I tried really hard to try and get in that, basically get in that theme, right? Because the, the, this, I think that's one of the things with the film that, that makes it so special is the idea of, this is probably one of the first times that we've seen it happen in this way is this idea of short stories. Yep. And, and it, it, uh, that for me was one of the things that when you said about it last week, I just thought straight away that, I mean, there's so much to go out there, isn't there? Which it's a hallmark of Tarantino's filmmaking, though. Even when you don't think it is, it is. Even look at Inglorious Bastards, look at Django Unchained, look at Reservoir Dogs. It's always a collection of short stories meshed into one kind of overarching narrative, which um, is just, you know. Our, our producer before, producer Purdy, before we recorded this, was just, you know, his, his thoughts on it were that too much dialogue, too much waffle. And my, my thought on that is, yeah, he said, he, and he said, that's, you know, classic Tarantino. And I said, exactly. The fact you can even label it that shows you why he's one of the goats. And uh, so do you want to begin with that? Do you, because obviously as a, as a kid, he was one that like just, I guess his films must have been synonymous with that period. I know they were for me um, in terms of the violence, the dialogue, the writing, the look. You know, all of those things. He's, he's quite a unique blend, isn't he? Completely, mate. He, you know, obviously a lot of his work, he's a real, he's a real like magpie, right? He, he, he's collected like cultural artifacts from his own, you know, you just need to see two minutes of a Quentin Tarantino interview to, to find, to see what a kind of cinema nerd he is and just what a general nerd he is. And he, like I say, he's been this magpie. He's collected all of these kind of cultural artifacts throughout time in music, in cinema, in culture, and kind of. And it's funny that this movie is called Pulp Fiction because it it is that kind of complete mesh of all these different things. Like if you look at if you look at Pulp Fiction even today in twenty twenty three, film came out in I think ninety four ninety three or ninety four, um, but it's it's. It's not kind of it's 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 got an almost timeless feel to it, right? You're kind of like could be seventies, could be eighties, could be nineties, but it could even be like noughties. You know, it, it it isn't kind of wedded to any kind of point in time, and I think that sort of adds to the overall aesthetic 
of it, if you get what I mean. Mm, mm. And uh, I mean, that, I feel like that is particularly, you really notice that in the diner scene. Yeah. When they go into the diner and they, is it Slim Jim's or, or, or I think that's the name of it. Slim, Slim Jim's, Jim's is, all, yeah, is with Uma Thurman and John Travolta. Yeah. And, and they sort of walk into the diner and the diner's obviously themed of this kind of, it's, it's very much a kind of homage to the, the kind of golden era of cinema and, uh, and mm. stuff like that. And they're kind of sat in these, it, it, do you know what? It, it's really reminiscent of the diner in Greece yeah, that they yeah. go to. And yet at the same time, you look at John Travolta and Uma Thurman and they don't dramatically stand out as like, wow, look, they're way ahead of this time. But equally, they don't fit in. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. such a strange way of putting it. But it, it, it's so funny as well because, you know, they, they go up and obviously one of the most iconic scenes, not only in the film, but probably in modern day cinema, is their dance together. Yeah. And it's Incredible. so kind of twee and it's so kind of silly, but it's so fucking cool as well. Oh, oh, oh. And, and that's, that to me is just, that's just that knack that, especially in the, in the sort of in the early days, that Tarantino really had for for his movies of just them just kind of being like they were almost everything that he knew he wasn't as a person, but he knew how to project it onto screen. If you get what I mean, like, hey, oh, that's such a good point. I, I was desperate to because we do when we do this pod, like we don't talk about the film before we go onto the podcast. And there's been so many times this week that I've wanted to just send you a little clip or send you a little moment. Yeah. Like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? I don't suppose you've come across the video of Quentin Tarantino directing the dance scene, the sort of behind no, the I scenes. Haven't. Mate, it's unbelievable because he's standing next to the camera, almost choreographing them as they go, sort of like really trying to encourage them. And he just looks like a total buffoon. But then, because <laughs> he's sort of like doing this awkward twist and his flailing limbs are everywhere, completely out of sync. And then you look at John Travolta, most ludicrous dance routine, and he just looks so cool. It shouldn't look that good, but he just looks amazing doing it. And I even saw him give an interview about, um, Quentin Tarantino give an interview about this and say that, he had even created the styles for their style of twist. So really? he wanted Uma Thurman to be a little bit more loose and a little bit more free and a bit kind of all over the place. And he wanted John Travolta to be much more rigid, very, very nimble and agile, but almost rigid and disciplined in the way that they, they danced. And then when, when I saw it through that lens, I was like, oh my God, like when you actually look at it, John Travolta looks just completely sort of pro and slick and Uma Thurman just looks like this nutcase just having a great time. But when you then see him directing the two, it's so on the nose of what you say. It's this, this guy that, that kind of is, is almost self-aware of the fact that he's totally uncool, but he just doesn't really care. He's like, I'm making this thing how I want to make it and you'll do what I say sort of thing. Yeah, it's brilliant. It, it's just, it's... I don't know. There's just there's so much about the film in every little kind of like facet that I just think just it just oozes kind of charisma. And the thing that like is kind of it's really hard to kind of for people to maybe understand now if if they were coming to 
you know, if, if somebody 17, 18 years old now watches a movie like Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs, there's plenty there for them to enjoy, in my opinion. Um, even, you know, Kill Bill, stuff like that, some of his later movies. I think the thing that's really hard to... And I really felt this because I watched um, Kill Bill uh, had its 20th anniversary, 20th anniversary um, last year, that's tail end of last year. And they re-released both of them in the cinema. And I went to watch them again in the cinema. And I watched both of them in the cinema when they first came out, obviously. And I just remember sort of thinking like, wow, like... That's twenty years that's that's just kind of gone now, and it's it's. I was I was struck with like this sort of strange feeling of like melancholy because I was just like I rem I remember this. I remember going to the cinema to watch this originally. It was so fresh and it was so ahead of its time, right? And you can see since that point, there's been a whole generation of films now that have all been just so in like so inspired and so. I don't know, just pastiched in the same way that he was doing to, to movies before him, but yeah. th that are just a pastiche to Tarantino. You even like a recent example, even now, something like Bullet Train. You see sort of a lot of the work of somebody like Guy Ritchie, somebody like Edgar Wright, some of these kind of filmmakers that have all just been kind of inspired by him. And there was a, there was a kind of, there was a, on a personal level, it's funny because you suddenly feel like, these cultural artifacts they're anchored like they are anchored to a point in time we are not though we are forever kind of yeah. floating away from them if you know what i mean yeah. and i i suddenly yeah. like i had this like overwhelming feeling of like god i'm like how is that 20 years ago now how is it 20 yeah. years since that movie came out and what what it kind of did make me reflect upon just in terms of like the film and not so much in an introspective sense was like just how much of a cultural impact something like Kill Bill, something like Pulp Fiction, something like Reservoir Dogs had. Like it, they were an absolute phenomenon. You know, you would hear the music, the soundtracks, all, all of it, the, the, the stylings of the movies would be echoed in you know you'd even see them kind of pulled into like think about bbc sitcoms your only fools and horses or your eastenders and do you know what i mean like that was the time yeah. everybody knew tarantino's movies everybody knew the stylings everybody knew the kind of the dance between uma thurman and john travolta everybody knew uh, hattori hanso samurai sword and her sort of striking yellow attire that type of thing do you know what i mean and it it made me reflect upon the fact that like in the kind of like information and culture saturated world we live in now that doesn't really happen anymore you don't really have and i'm not saying i don't buy into this idea that filmmakers aren't as good anymore and they don't try as hard or anything like that i'm not I'm, i just don't think the world is built the same anymore it doesn't exist in the same type of place anymore where somebody can just take over in that way anymore do, do you it's know too what transient. i mean it's too transient, isn't 100%. it? It's, everything is too fleeting. Because I can remember, so I'll give you a couple of examples of this. I, I, I can remember watching The Matrix for the first time and everyone in the playground pretending to do the bullet time right. thing where his arms like run backwards and he sort of is trying to dodge the bullets. 
and everyone would kind of be standing there leaning as far back as they could to get as close as the ground as possible pretending to be and they would say oh look matrix you know and it would yeah. and it would sort of like you knew exactly what they meant and and and, and this is very similar and uh, this is such a terrible example so you'll have to forgive me but i had a really similar experience in the cinema a few months ago with a totally different film uh, and it was <laughs> jackass forever and it what? sounds yeah. no, so no, stupid. No, I know exactly where you're going. But I sat there expecting this completely silly, ridiculous, grown men getting beaten to a pulp by a bull, by a wasp's nest, by like snakes and planks of wood with nails in and things like that. Yeah. And about halfway through the film, I just got this really bleak sense of... Um, just of the passing of time. Yeah. I suddenly sat there and I was like, oh my God, like these guys, you're watching these guys no longer able to do the thing. They None of them could do no. it in the way that they used to because none of them could survive it. They were all sort of, they kind of were suddenly wincing and feeling the pain of this thing that, that, that 20 years ago, they were just getting battered and bouncing back up, probably under the influence of a lot of drugs and alcohol. But 20 years on, the sort of film, sorry, spoiler incoming, but the film basically ends with Johnny Knoxville coming out of hospital and you're like, oh my God, like that's my, th th I, you have to come to terms with that idea that your childhood is now parked, you know, that your childhood had a beginning and had an end and those huge moments of cultural significance belong in that era and yes, you can flash back and look at them and appreciate them, but they no longer are able to kind of, carry the same gravitas that they did at that time and that uh, so much of that is because of the way the world moves like you said but i i do wonder whether there is room in cinema for that kind of spectacle anymore i mean if you look at avatar when it the first avatar when it came out mm. we sat there and we marveled at it and 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 the film actually was probably quite lacking in terms of <clears throat> overarching storyline <clears throat> But you, you sat there and you were like, wow, this, this could be era-defining. Avatar 2 comes out. And honestly, I haven't even bothered with it. No, I haven't even bothered with it. Yep. <clears throat> it's such a strange phenomenon. You, you should. It's actually thing. good. But <laughs> is it? Right, it okay, is, I will. It's good. It is good. I was surprised because I, I wasn't going to be bothered with it. And then it was, again, one of those times when it was like one of the only things on at a good time and we went to watch it. And I was like, you know yeah. what? Yeah. I've got to take my hat off to, to Big JC. It's good film. It's a solid movie. Yeah. And the, the, the thing that I found out in the wake of that is apparently he, like Avatar, the Avatar series are the movies that got him into filmmaking. He like came up with the root idea of a lot of these stories wow. when he was a child. He was drawing like the, what's the name of them? The people? The blue people? <laughs> oh, the Na'vi? God. Is it? Is yeah, it the yeah, Na'vi? Yeah. Well remembered. Yeah. Very well remembered. He, yeah, he was. He was drawing them as a as a kid. Um, I might need to fact check this, but I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it is. I kind of. I give. I give him a pass to that. But if we sort of steer this back to to pulp fiction in general, like I'm just interested to know, mate. I'm interested to know, like, when did you first watch this movie, and how on this watching. Did your opinion or your understanding of the movie change from when you first watched it? Um, I was very late 
to this like late I, I watched this when I I want to say I almost rediscovered cinema okay so I loved going to cinema as, as a kid like I absolutely adored it and it was a is a treat to go to the cinema but I think I think the difficulty for me we we definitely as, as kids me and my family we didn't grow up with a huge amount of cash so the idea of just being able to just go to the cinema was was quite a big deal you know it was like birthdays yep. it was friends birthday parties things yeah, like that yeah. and so then when I did get money or I had a part-time job then other interests came along that you wanted to spend your money on like going to house parties and getting booze you know and you end up spending your your money on things like that so then when I kind of eventually got that chance to start going to the cinema again and I remember going to watch it on one of those kind of like old school reruns you know the, the kind of similar to what you were talking about with Prince Charles the other week yeah um and I thought oh that was that because I'd, I'd, I'd loved all of Tarantino's films and I'd seen the, the ones that I'd seen anyway I'd watch Kill Bill and um, I'd watch Jackie Brown and Reservoir Dogs and I, I just for whatever reason I hadn't watched Pulp Fiction so it would have been my early 20s I think that I watched this and I think at that time the thing that would have stood out to me would have been like the the violence and the way in which the the violence is portrayed Mm. Uh, th th that it's quite kind of like the scene of John Travolta, for example, getting shot into the bath. Most films would see the character get shot and then would cut away. And actually, in this instant, it cuts back to him, you know. Really when visceral, isn't it? Really <clears throat> yeah, visceral. Yeah, oh, oh, totally. And when they cut, I mean, when, when John Travolta shoots, um, is it Vincent in the car? Oh, sorry, Vincent shoots... I forget the name of the, the other character. Marvin in the car. No, is it Marvin? Yeah, maybe. It shoots Marvin in the car. And there is like literally bits of brain on Samuel yeah, L. Jackson. Horrible. And then so I was like, wow, this is like nothing I've ever seen before. The thing that stood out this time and this rewatch, and obviously, like we said, we watch it through different lenses now. But to, sorry to jump back onto Purdy's point, but was the dialogue. Um, it, 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 I found it really, um, I don't know what the word would be. I was just fascinated by the dialogue and I'll come back to the diner scene because I found it, the dialogue was really purposeful, like very intentional dialogue, mm -hmm. but I never, I, I never, I didn't feel like there was loads of heat between John Travolta and Uma Thurman. I never was like, wow, these two are about to rip each other's clothes off, you know, but I felt like what they were doing was creating a situation with the dialogue, you know, that you would then be challenged by. And and I think once I'd watched that scene and as we were going on, I started to realise that every single bit of the dialogue is so purposeful, is so yeah. intentional, you know, is it, that, that you, you kind of just little things that you've seen within the first five minutes of the film suddenly carry so much weight. And also, I mean, the, the other thing, just on the dialogue, the other thing is, like, I had a newfound respect for his for his pop culture references, the way that he can transition between them talking about getting high in Amsterdam and uh, uh, eating a burger to then suddenly almost copy-paste that situation into another room with Samuel L. Jackson pointing a gun at someone. Yeah, you know, just yeah. it, it, it's just fascinating, isn't it? What What about for you, mate? What was the thing when you watched it this time that kind of stirred something in you? 
I think like, one of the, one of the main things I kind of reflect because I actually, you know, I haven't watched this film for quite some time actually now. Um, I'd probably say at least ten years since I since I last watched Pulp Fiction. Um, and like I say, you know, when I was, I think I would have first watched this. I reckon. Let me guess. I would say I th- oh, no. I watched it. I remember I watched it at my friend Sam's house. I watched it on a sleepover. It was an eighteen, and his older brother had it on tape. And I remember watching it when I was probably in year seven or year eight. So that oh, would wow. be like ninety seven or ninety eight. I first watched yeah. it. And I remember back then, obviously, there's the kind of the thrill of knowing I'm watching a movie that, like, my parents probably wouldn't have let me watch. Oh, such a good point. Do you know what I mean? So there was that. It was heightened by that. There was the excitement in that. There was the kind of, like, the... You know when you're of a certain age and you're introduced to concepts that you've basically been shielded from? Yeah. um, For, yeah, for most of your time growing up where you get that almost like uncomfortable feeling where you're suddenly like, oh, I don't like this. I sort of want a cuddle from my mum. You know, do you know what I mean? That feeling when you're first, when you're like 13 suddenly and you're between being sort of suddenly becoming a teenager and moving away from actually being a child and you're like, oh, I don't like it. Things are changing and I feel different. And this is kind of weird. But I remember watching, you know, like the drug scenes and like the kind of like, the sex references and things kind of just being a bit kind of like, whoa, this is kind of new ground. This is above my station. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. And so, but still kind of being like really drawn to like this, just the way the people on screen were talking, like you're saying, and just remembering being like, because the thing that I think it is really important to remember, like I say, is that like, he was just so like, he suddenly, he sort of came out of nowhere. Tarantino and started making movies like this like I say that so many people have tried to sort of ape since but he was like and I'm sure somebody will say okay well he was actually inspired by these kind of like neo-noir filmmakers from the kind of 70s and 60s and stuff as is always the thing that gets leveled against Tarantino but what he did is he took those kind of stylings those more kind of art house almost theatrical like you say that kind of that deliberate way of speaking that kind of forced unnatural dialogue and made it mainstream and brought it to the kind of forefront so watching it back then i didn't really appreciate it on that level to me it was kind of gun sex ultra violence snappy dialogue and being like wow there's so much going on and it's so fast paced and it's so just mad and the narrative and everything is unlike anything I've ever seen on screen. The funny thing now is watching it now, right? <laughs> and and it, it, it is so funny, like seeing it now, like obviously it's just time. It's just what happens. You know, you watch old sports highlights and the athletes back then who were doing unbelievable, incredible things look almost laughable compared to your average yeah, athlete yeah, nowadays yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of thing, yeah. right? So when I watch Pulp Fiction now, one of the main things that struck me is actually how slow paced it feels now. Like, yeah. it, 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 do you know, like it, it felt almost like... Um, it's almost methodical now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, methodical and almost like ponderous in places, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and 
But what, what really st stood out for me that I, I would say one of the main things I really like drew from it this time, like I say, like it, it's, it's a real juxtaposition to, like I say, from when I was growing up and I said like it felt fresh, it felt new and it was exciting and there were all these things. I don't think that sort of that takes away from that at all. But w what I really feel like now is when I watch like, when I watch Pulp Fiction, and I think about kind of, I think about more of these stories that have come out in the past, say, 10 to 20 years, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, these kind of shows that were being kind of held up because what they have done is kind of take criminals and show them not only through a kind of morally ambiguous lens where you don't cast direct judgment upon them in a bad, good sense, you're also just seeing more a kind of like day-to-day life of yeah. uh, sort of career. and what i really took from pulp fiction this time when i was watching it, i was suddenly like you know you know what he has really done here actually he's taken a, a load of like archetypes the gangster the henchman the thug in um bruce willis's character the the mafia boss um in marcellus wallace and what he's actually done is still managed to present them in their glamorous archetypal fashion, but simultaneously actually show, just like everybody else, quite how mundane their lives are and how between the big events that punctuate their existence, which is generally ultraviolence, drugs, sex, so on and so forth, are still the same pointless conversations that the rest of us occupy ourselves with be it about if a foot massage is cheating or how the dutch eat their chips you know <laughs> and it was just good point. and it was just so interesting it's suddenly now watching it on reflection being like what he's doing like he's completely deconstructing these archetypes while still holding them up it's such a like it's such a a I just think it, I don't know. I just think he is like, he's genius. Like he just is, you know? And I know, I know that word is so overused now and people don't like it, but in a cinema sense, it, just what he's doing there is is unbelievable. And it, the craft to bring that all to life is in part down to what I would say is across the board, stellar performances from everybody involved in the in the movie. But the fact that they all seem to be bought into kind of the, the the central concept, which is, I guess, I would say probably an, an early attempt at showing the kind of moral ambiguity in everybody. Everybody seems to be bought into that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I, this is probably the first time that we've done a film where the mvp conversation later could go one of 10 ways oh yeah like it's, it's, it's incredible yeah. like absolutely incredible in terms do you know of who yours is just just like yeah absolutely i've got i've got one and then i've got a, maybe an assist in there as well okay. but do, um one of the things that stood out to me is so true what you say about this idea of the the kind of mundaneness and and the sort of standard average fair stuff that goes on in all of our lives and those conversations that you have like i mean there are <clears throat> there are big issues for me that we'll get onto later on in some of the dialogue particularly around quentin tarantino's character that kind of i, I found a bit challenging 
But his character has a really, really vital part of the conversation where he's like, do you know what will happen if my missus gets back? You know, like, it, 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 that that kind of standard sort of, like, this is Precisely. a real-life problem for me. Exactly. This, this, he's he's got two gangsters life, and a body in his garage, you know? Yeah, and instead of being like, right, okay, let's get on with it and get rid of the body, he's like, do you have any <laughs> idea what will happen to my wife if my wife finds out about this? Which is such a good way of kind of, like, levelling the sort of almost... I think it's sometimes a problem that these films have is that you sometimes lose your bearings because you're so immersed within the chaos of it all that you can't actually relate to it. And so those conversations are a really lovely way of doing it. And I think another thing that really stood out to me, and I'm sorry if I'm I'm taking this before you were just about to say it because I feel like you were on this path anyway, is that I adore the fact that he just so consistently is like, sometimes life happens outside of you while you're in the bathroom taking a shit. Yeah. Like you're the, you, you're like, uh, like yeah. you're like, I'll go and take a, take a dookie. And in the meantime, you miss that, that you miss the thing that goes on. And, and I mean, there's, there is, so for me, it feels unbelievably intentional that at the beginning, the kind of hold up scene with, with the, with the, the three guys in the, in the room and the fourth is waiting in the bathroom. And then John Travolta puts his gun down so that he can go to the toilet and, and use the bathroom. Uma Thurman ODs and he's upstairs in the bathroom. Yep. Um, then you get the, um, you get the, 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 the scene where they're like worried about the, the wife coming in. So they, have to go into the bathroom, wash all this, this Such blood a good off point. them. Yeah, it's, it's like consistently there is this this running theme of like sometimes things are just mundane. Like sometimes there is these kind of like uh, do you know what mundane's the wrong word? But sometimes there's just this normal stuff that happens. Yeah. Like and and it's so rare to see it in films that that someone like the idea that you've just blown someone's head off, but you need to include a thirty second scene where two dudes are in the bathroom washing bits of brain off of themselves. And, and you just, shouldn't use the wrong towel because you'll get blood on it. <laughs> you know, it's but so it, but, it, but it's it's so it's the thing is it's so strange about it is like I say like I remember at the time kind of watching this and being like, well, they don't do this in films, you know, and yeah, and, and yeah. now you suddenly like like his like one of the biggest sort of he was brave Tarantino as a filmmaker in the sense that he was not afraid to just like you say show just life in its kind of like because he's still like I say he's still would punctuate it with the big cinema moments that you want to see. And he does those like an absolute boss, you know, like he smashes yeah. those out. Of the like I say, I keep coming back to it, but the the dance between Mia Wallace and Vincent Vegas is just, it's just iconic. It's just so brilliant the way it goes into it. And like, you know, when you watch even like the beginning bit, you know, I love you, honey buddy. Oh, I love you, pumpkin. Oh. Any of you fucking oh. pricks move. I'm going to oh. execute every motherfucking last one of you. Freeze Do frame. You. Do you know, but, like, but the, the, the opening scene, freeze frame into Mizzaloo. Do you know what I mean? You're just suddenly yeah. like, wow, man. Like, yeah. what the fuck? This is unbelievable. But, 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 but he's still, what you say like, between that, people going to the toilet. <laughs> he's, he says as well, he's like, how many people hold up a diner? You know, yeah. and it's and, and it's that, that that sort of sometimes you have those weird conversations with people, and it's like, would you rather blah 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 or blah yeah. blah blah? And you're like, why on earth has that come into your head? Like, why on earth are you? But then you have the conversation, and you sort of gradually see her character being like, oh yeah, I could rather diner. It's just sort of it's exactly so the same funny. with the foot massage conversation. You know, exactly, when you're suddenly like exactly. Because at first you're like, God, that is ridiculous. But then when you see Vince Vegas make more and more of the point, you're suddenly like, 
oh okay i do actually kind of get it now like yeah i still don't it still doesn't justify pushing someone out off a building but still you know so this is actually one of my problems with the film is that i wanted with that dialogue it's so good that i feel like sometimes it, it progresses the story so much and does so much for the story that at times with Uma Thurman's character, I wanted to feel more for her character. And I know this is kind of like an age old criticism of, of Tarantino that he doesn't write female characters incredibly well, like that, 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 that they kind of serve the purpose of the film, like any other character and that maybe he doesn't differentiate as much as he should. Mm-hmm. But I really wanted in that diner scene, I wanted to feel that there was like chemistry between John Travolta and Uma Thurman's characters. I wanted to feel that there was like a, a heat there because the scene where he goes back to her house and then does the pep talk in, in the mirror and he's like, just go home, just go home, you know, like just go and like tug one out or whatever it is that he says <laughs> and and just like and that's the end of your evening and he has a sort of bit of a one-man team talk in there i sort of hadn't felt like they had done enough to convince you that they were on that that they were on that path but that was partly because to me the dialogue in terms of the discussion around um what the, i forget the name of the guy who'd been chucked out the window that had given her a foot massage um but they have a conversation about it and he kind mm. of is like, is that true? What happened there? And it's sort of, the dialogue is so good for suiting the film and actually driving the film forward that I didn't kind of feel that it moved enough for those two. But I don't know whether that's just me looking for something for me, if that makes sense. I do know what you mean. I, do, I, I definitely do know what you mean to a degree. Like it's, but I think part of that, like I think personally speaking, part of that comes from, the fact that his 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 style like especially his dialogue is not it's intentionally not realistic you know it's yeah, kind of it, yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah, it's absolutely. uh it's an affected style right yeah. and i definitely i do agree because you know that is as you say is a common criticism of tarantino's filmmaking that his female characters are essentially props to bring out something in in a kind of male character and like you say it essentially like really her function in the movie is to show kind of it's it's to put Vincent in a position of peril, but also to kind of show a, a more human softer side to Vincent, somebody Vincent who is this complete hothead. And all he does is project this idea of being like, he better not talk to me or I'll do X, Y, and Z in this situation. It's him having to check himself knowing that he can't be impulsive and he can't, kind of just fire ahead with whatever he wants to but in, in terms of like what you're saying between those two um i do know what you mean you, did nah. you when you were watching it did you feel like there was heat there yes i do i do okay because... so that's that's really interesting because that just means that i i just didn't pick it up do you know what i mean but it, but it, it feels like it's because he is well, I mean, he's actually, you know, he's obviously, <laughs> he's 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 in the midst of a heroin trip or what, however you would yeah. classify having a taken haze, heroin. maybe. Yeah, there you go. And he's, so I think he's sort of, he's part dealing with that, but he's also part kind of, I guess, throughout the whole thing, having to kind of fight the urge in any way to come across as somehow 
inappropriate, you know? Ultimately, yeah. he's taking his boss's wife out to dinner and his boss also happens to be this ruthless mafia boss. Um, yeah. So and I, I think it was just kind of, you know, I guess on that note of like things being mundane and all this type of stuff is that sometimes, you know, it's not a grand love story. Sometimes people just go out, have a few drinks and then go home and sleep with each other. It just, you know, it's just kind of what happens, yeah. but it's it's what people do, right? And it's, I guess it's kind of just showing you that even if it's not played out on screen in this kind of like intense kind of love connection scene, that there's still that kind of thing always simmering beneath the surface. But I, I, one thing I do want to say is even though like, because I do, I do definitely agree with, with the idea that like, you don't really get enough from, I mean, the whole, again, the whole kind of character of Mia Wallace is Marcellus Wallace's wife. You know, it's like you yeah, have to yeah, yeah. take her out. And But what I will say is, and it's it's funny considering that when she was in this movie, she was about the same age as her daughter is now, who's, you know, in Stranger Things and in her own movies and stuff like that. Just what a presence she had. I mean, you know, in her early to mid-20s, just what a presence she had and how she was so oh. like tarantino's muse you know like yeah she's just i don't know just that kind of quirky kind of quirky kind of almost cutesy style that felt intentional on her part though that it was always like because you the one thing i did feel from all of those scenes is that she was always in control you know, she was in control of, yeah. of everything that was going on. She told him when to get up and dance. She, I, I don't know, she just kind of had her own sort of sense of confidence, whether that came from being the kind of boss's wife or not. There was something there, and I think Uma Thurman really just, like, nailed that, you know? Oh, like, she, phenomenal. Like, and that is, I've watched a couple of interviews that she did with Junkets around that time. And seeing her speak just about the film, she one, she's unbelievably striking, just naturally, just incredibly gorgeous, but yeah. very quite softly spoken and so far removed from that character that then when you sort of watch it and you see it's a sort of day and night black and white thing, you're just like, wow she really it sort of gives you another level of respect for the way that she sort of holds the scenes like particularly with John Travolta because there is that jeopardy there that you know that if he makes one wrong move because we've all been in that situation right that was um that was one of the things that Tarantino said ab about the film was that these were actually three stories that had been played out time and time and time again that they were films that, that, that stories that everyone had heard but he wanted to give them a twist and he wanted to bring them into the relevance of popular culture of that time. And so he said like every everyone's heard that story of don't mess with the boss's wife, don't mess yeah. with the boss's daughter, that kind of thing. Um so there is that jeopardy but she just plays on that and she sort of riffs on that so well. Cuz she I she... think it excites her, right? Doesn't it? Knowing yeah, that yeah, she yeah. can be trouble, you know? And she and she leaves it ambiguous. She's like, "Do you really think that he threw him out of a window because of a foot massage?" She doesn't say no. He didn't give yeah. me a foot massage. She's just like, "No, let's just see where you want to go with this." And and so when she says like, "Get up and you dance good." Like, "I want to win that trophy, so dance and dance good." 
you sort of feel like that's an instruction, that's an order, but John Travolta's character can't do it that well because he sh- he's going to get himself into trouble. So she just is so totally commanding. And one of the other things that I was going to ask you, mate, did you, I assume you wouldn't have realised this as a kid, but did you realise when you re- watched it originally or watching it kind of years back, what this meant for John Travolta? Because we didn't have, we wouldn't have seen the passage of time that he had w- with his career. Do you know what I mean? Like, so you're watching this and you're like, oh, John Travolta's in this. You're not thinking, oh my God, John Travolta needs this to resurrect his career. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? It's really, that's something I found out Yeah, a few years back, but I had no idea about that. I had no idea that he was basically like on the kind of, I mean, he only got this movie because um, Michael Madsen couldn't be Vincent Vegas in it. He, he had commitments elsewhere. He was making another movie. Wow. And yeah, they got John Travolta in, but it's again it's one of those times where you're like you couldn't see anyone else doing it but him right yeah he's just, and he's... now now i can't particularly given the dance thing like because of that it like and you i mean you and i are both big fans of this but it made me i, I then had to watch the dance scene back from saturday night fever yeah. just i just, I just yeah. had to just to get the bgs him on the, the lit up dance floor and just kind of don't he just it, my missus actually said this she said this shouldn't look cool but it looks so cool you know it, it, it shouldn't saturday night fever and i think again this kind of they're in a retro bar with a lit up dance floor it shouldn't look that good but i think something about him he's just such a phenomenal movie and there is also that lovely juxtaposition of they're doing something so silly but they're taking it so seriously you know, they look like scowling at each other and pouting and stuff. It just is amazing. But he was just in general. I just thought John Travolta was, I thought him and Samuel L. Jackson together, any scene where they're in together, it's just so unbelievably it's engrossing. Brilliant. And I would it, never have placed that. This is a bit that got me at the end, you know, when he's saying, do you want any bacon? And he's like, no, I don't want bacon. I don't eat swine. It's a filthy animal. And yeah, he's like, but, oh but, you've, you, but you've got a dog. And he's like, yeah, but a dog is kind of, you know, it's got a personality. And he's like, so you're saying if a pig had a personality, you'd eat it. And he said, that'd have to be one charming motherfucking pig, you know? <laughs> and you can see, the thing is, it's one of those moments I love it. You can see the actors genuinely laugh at that. They like this, yeah. the way they're having this back forward conversation, the way like Samuel L. Jackson delivers that line. He fucking knocks it out the park, oh, man. man. Like, And it's just like... He, 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 you can see John Travolta just goes, and even Samuel L. Jackson. I love it. It's called corpsing, isn't it? When people yeah, like, they yeah, can't yeah, stop yeah. themselves from laughing, yeah. not yeah. in character, and it just it set me off as well. And it's just oh no, I love I little moments like that. I love little bits like that. Can I um? Can I ask? This is such a sort of cliche question about this the briefcase. Film, <laughs> yeah, man. Like, I, j- I want to get it out there. I want to, there's two things that I want to, I want to sort of like, that are very base level questions that are just mm. for popcorn kids like me, the briefcase. And then the kind of, what is the film trying to say about the kind of the, the, the Ezekiel um, Bible passage that Samuel L. Jackson reads. So uh, maybe we could do the briefcase first, but like, what did you sort of, What's your reading on what is in the briefcase? Well, I have sort of wanted... You can go online and you can see Reddit threads of people 
doing all sorts of ridiculous things, trying to look for the reflection, trying to say what type of item would give off this reflection. Some people saying it's metaphorical, some people saying it's this. Apparently, right, in an early version of the script, it was a suitcase full of diamonds. And Quentin Tarantino was almost doing like a, like um, Stephen King does with his literature. And like, you know, you, you see kind of, many people do. He was almost trying to create like the Quentin Tarantino universe, perhaps where it was almost, it can be an implied nod to that being the suitcase from Reservoir Dogs. But later on, I think he revised that because he just thought, actually, that's really corny. And so what the briefcase was almost supposed to represent was the greatest desire of the person that opens it. Hence why, and that, that's essentially what it means. That's its kind of its purpose within the movie is showing that everybody has this kind of base, fundamental kind of thing that drives them. There's a, there's a kind of an almost primitive type urge in everybody and a desire there for something and that's kind of what that briefcase is it's just supposed to represent whatever that person might want and that's why it's so enticing to them you know yeah that's such a do you know what that is the one place that i didn't go with with that the what the, the kind of idea of it being a kind of the thing that someone desires um because I originally kind of the light, your your mind immediately goes to gold, and then you sort of think, well, there must be something incredibly valuable or precious. Um, but then, then once you start getting into that whole idea of people have sort of said, haven't they? It might be Marcellus Wallace's soul. Um, but then I saw this amazing, I saw this amazing video of Tarantino saying, I am not. A reporter sort of says to him, like, what was in the suitcase? And he says, I'm not going to tell you what was in the suitcase because you can go and see the film and whatever came into your mind or whatever is in your mind with what that suitcase is, is what the suitcase is. Because one of the things that I love about cinema is that if three different people go and have three different reactions to what is in the suitcase, that means that they've seen, seen three different films because all of the dialogue will shape the film in a way that gives confirmation bias to what they've watched, which is it just was, I found that really striking. Like that was really, really powerful to me that you can, because I know you and I have spoken a lot about this before, but the idea of going to a cinema, going to, to watch a film, and having an entirely different reaction to someone else. Mm. And then at the same time being sat there like, what are you talking about? It was this. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're absolutely wrong. Yeah. But it's so true what he says that it then makes a different film. You've seen a different film and it's completely relative to you, which is, I, I just thought that was such a, a powerful thing and, and, and such an amazing thing to have. And, and it, even then him saying that gave me a, kind of different reflection on the the film that i've seen which was which is just amazing i thought there was i mean it, the, the fact that the the code to the briefcase is 666 i felt like there's <coughs> obviously a very he's leading you there and the fact that that samuel l jackson is the one in possession of the briefcase and yet he's the one that is giving the kind of the the path of the righteous man's speech <coughs> sorry um, the Ezekiel speech, it's Samuel L. Jackson that gives it, is is obviously a nod as well. But it's just so fascinating, isn't it? That idea that it could be 10 different things and that's fine. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, and that's just kind of the thing is that sort of thing will always annoy people. Some there are some people that will want to know. There's gold bars in that, you know. Yeah, loads, yeah, yeah. There's loads of heroin yeah, in that. Yeah. Why is he yeah. doing this stuff? But for people like <clears> me, <laughs> I just I love that. I love the ambiguity. You know, there are people who will, and I won't. I won't give any spoilers, but. I mean, you should have watched it by now, but there are people who will love the ending of The Sopranos and there are people who absolutely detest it, you know? And that's just kind of, that's just the way the, the, the cookie crumbles. But, it, it, you know, into the Ezekiel quote, and I think this this all plays into it, like you say, with the 666 briefcase and stuff, is that, you know, I haven't really kind of considered what the Ezekiel quote is in isolation and what exactly, it, 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 what parallels he's trying to draw. But I guess for me, one of the overarching themes of the whole movie is it's about morality. You know, the the whole movie is about morality and it is about that ambiguity of that all of us have, you know, whether it's the kind of the moment that Samuel L. Jackson can go from, like you say, quoting the Bible, shooting <laughs> somebody because he's just paid to do it in cold blood, basically. He's a hitman and he's killing somebody in cold blood. And then he's kind of talking about like that God might have saved him and this type of thing. You know, it, it, it's it, it, it's 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 very kind of like it, it's it's not trying to like really judge anybody. Um, it's it, it's just trying to show you that people just in, in the most basic way I can put it, mate. People just do stuff, you know. People yeah, do stuff, and yeah, like, yeah. like, and that's. I guess that ties into the point about like Mia Wallace and Vincent Vegas. How you're saying like you didn't feel that big connection, but like I was sort of saying to you, sometimes people just go home and sleep with each other. It just sort of happens, <laughs> and and you know, but then you but you see these kind of moments. You see these moments about people who you think are kind of bad people. You have someone like Bruce Willis's character. What's his name? Is it Butch? Is it? Yeah. 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 Butch. Yeah. Who he's obviously he's struck this deal with a gangster that he's going to throw his last boxing match and he's going to go down. But his pride, you know, if we talk about like the Bible, we talk about deadly sins, his pride stops him from being able to kind of take the fall and he kills the other, he kills the other boxer unintentionally um, at the same time. And, you know, he goes through the whole kind of process of trying to get his father's watch back and escape and all that type of thing. And he runs into, into Marcellus Wallace and they have the whole, encounter with the rednecks and the <laughs> ghoulishly unpleasant scene in the uh in the basement where marcellus wallace is being raped and in that moment you know he goes back to he doesn't you know marcellus wallace is done for at that point he knows he is so he doesn't need to go back to save his own skin he goes back because really he has that moment of thinking ah, this is the right thing to do you know, I have to yeah. go and save him. I have to kind of, and I just, I think it's, I think those kind of themes of morality and almost judgment that somebody maybe somewhere is watching you are present throughout, you know, be it yeah. that even, you know, Mia Wallace is kind of watching Vincent through a security camera when, when he comes back and all throughout that kind of dinner scene and all throughout that, he's feeling the presence of Marcellus Wallace wherever he is you know um they all they all almost are really throughout the entire movie um so it's just well, yeah I, I, I yeah i guess the other 
the other thing is, it, to come back to your point you made earlier on, he doesn't present anyone as the goody or the baddie. No. You know, they're all doing things that are pretty morally repugnant. And yet yeah. at the same time, none of them are presented as bad people and none of them are presented as good people either. They just, to your, to your point, they're kind of like, I, I think that was the thing for me with that Ezekiel passage that I find so in- interesting is that he sort of, is that the path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. And I mean, it feels like that passage is basically saying like that they're, they're all of the characters within the film are all kind of, they're all tiptoeing on that tightrope of moral right and wrong and, and yeah. just trying to make their way to the end of the film. And that there it, it does at times feel like a sort of, I really felt that there was a almost you weren't rooting for anyone to win. You're just like, who's going to survive this? Cause this is all, like, it's all going, it's all going to go off. Yeah. And who's going to survive this. And you sort of, even when you're going into the third act and you're going into the third story, even though the timelines are reversed, you're kind of, you're kind of willing certain characters to kind of manage to get to the end of it. I mean, John Travolta's character, you, you, you're really willing him well, even though you know that he's already been shot, yeah. which is really strange. You're like, I really want him to get out of this situation, but you know that he gets out of the situation in the diner, but you sort of find yourself still sort of, it's not that you want him, yeah, like I said, it's not that you want him to win, you just want them to survive, which is such a strange thing. And I suppose that comes back to your point about everyone is just existing alongside each other in this universe. And you just sort of want, basically, you want the universe to be unpacked and then repackaged together and maintained at the end of the film. But I mean, it's a Tarantino film, so that's never going <laughs> to, it's never going to happen. No. Like someone's got to die. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, you can't, you can't wriggle out of it anymore. Who's your MVP for this one? I, Samuel L. Jackson for me. Yeah. Samuel L. Jackson. 100%, just, right? Just so, so just irresistible in every single moment yeah you cannot take your eyes off him you can't you are drawn to every word that he says every inflection of what he says there's a moment in the shootout scene where he delivers the speech right with the shootout where um where he's in the flat and and he eats the burger and he does like (laughs) can i have a sip of this refreshing beverage yeah to to wash wash this down down. (laughs) yeah and we like with his hand all of it the hand motions everything and like the the squelch of the burger as he eats but mate how delicious does he make it look eating a burger i watched that and i was like i want a cheeseburger it may be literally it may be one of yam a burger but the the thing that gets me is that he he then starts giving the speech and then Vincent cocks his cocks his pistol because he's like right we're killing them now you yeah. know even just even just even just that little detail that makes it so mundane that these guys are just oh we've got to just kill three dudes but I I just it, it, he one of the things that I read was that each of the different stories is meant to really sort of give the the sort of lead to the, the three sort of guys so one to butch one for vincent and one for um for jules and i just felt that samuel L. jackson throughout the entirety of his kind of lead sequence 
just stole the whole thing. I, I just, he was phenomenal. But I do, just while we're on this, I I do want to give a shout to, to Bruce Willis. Yeah. Because the news about him at the moment is just, it, it, I think that comes back to what you were saying earlier on about this idea that these films almost exist as time capsules. Yeah. And the way that you watch someone perform in that film is there in stone forever. But life doesn't work like that. And we all move on and time moves on. And the people that are in these films are not immortal. The film kind of immortalizes them, but their mm. their body does just like all of us is, is going to let us down eventually. And it's just, it's so sad hearing what's happening to him, but also so unbelievably uplifting to know that a performance like this can last forever. You know? Yeah. yeah who was definitely. your, who's your MVP? Who was oh, yours? Samuel Samuel Jackson. Jackson. Without a doubt, mate, without a doubt, just that he commands every scene that he's in. And like you say, he, he's just, his delivery is just, it's just unbelievable. You know, every single line, the way he manages to flip from being, like you say, a guy who is fascinated by what do they call this in Europe and what do they call that? Yeah. And do you know yeah. what I mean? Like just he's got yeah. that kind of like childlike interest in the world and everything that's going on around him to suddenly being like this terrifying, terrifying hitman. Like the tension in that scene, right? The tension in that scene is even I've seen this movie plenty of times is still unbearable. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's just the, the way, you know, say what one more time, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> just like, just the way he just delivers it. The whole scene is just oh, so good. You know, it's and brilliant. You know, brilliant. you said about the tension. The guy, do you know what makes me the most anxious watching that scene? Is that there's a guy lying on the sofa and you're like, that guy can't move. <laughs> you know, he's like he's lying down. He's like so vulnerable and prone to just being committed. And you know he's gonna get biffed at some point. Because like, he tries to get up, remember and Samuel Jackson's like, yeah, no. just And he makes him move his legs back up as well. And Oh man, it's he's so good. But like but, you said, it's well, mean, even like the scene in the bathroom when he's like, Please come on, Jimmy's my friend. You know, I respect you, Vincent, yeah. but wash your hands, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that was so good. Yeah. I think there's there's a couple of others that we should probably shout. Christopher Walken's yep. sort of weird monologue thing that just for a guy that's on screen for what is he on screen for five minutes? I mean, that's phenomenal. It's so good that uh, to deliver it with a straight face, just like, talking about cramming a watch up your ass in front of a <laughs> five year old. I mean, it just is so good. Just incredible. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Ving Rhames as well. Yeah. Um, the the wolf, which I thought was a, I, I mean, again, another one on screen, five minutes, ten minutes, just steals it for that that five ten minutes, just amazing. So pretty please with sugar on top, clean a fucking car. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so good. And I mean, <laughs> even when he sort of does that that kind of little dialogue with Quentin Tarantino in the bedroom about, he's sort of like, these are my best sheets. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so good. Yeah. so good and i mean even the, the, even the um even the kind of um i mean i've obviously been watching the last of us like you have as well and you know there's kind of a, a spoilers watch out if you haven't finished watching the last of us yet careful here um the the scene with the cannibals yeah where they're they're sort of they lock ellie away in the sort of cage 
there's a really similar sinister vibe about the rednecks Zed and I forget the name of the other guy. Was it Brett? Brett Something and Zed, like is that, that right? Yeah. But they that that horrible tension. I mean, how you managed to jump to that in a in a film like this? You know, you just managed to create that mm. that set play. Just, just that kind of that. just oh yeah it kind Peril, of it, isn't it yeah and it's that, do you know what it also made me think about you know when you think about the kind of the likes of your Fred Wests and your Harold Shipmans like yes people yes. that just l- exist they they live alongside Evil. us you know um, yeah. what's his name the, the Joseph Fritzel people like that you know like yeah. people that the fact that he knew to call his friend Zed because he'd opportunistically had he said something like you know two flies are falling into the web or he says something along yeah. those lines and the fact they have this kind of rape and you'd assume murder dungeon beneath this kind of unassuming shop in the middle of just a bog standard looking parade of shops somewhere in you know a retail part of la is just you know it's 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 horrible and one of the you know you talk sort of talk about the one of the things i guess we didn't we didn't touch on i was feeling that like consistently throughout this movie there is a, a feeling of timing you know because you've got it quite literally in the watch but you have things like butch bumping into marcellus wallace you have oh the fact gosh, that they yeah. both and that's horrible your heart sinks at that point right but when the fact that they both go into the into the shop you have the timing of the fact that vincent misses mia actually getting heroin that she thinks is cocaine out of his jacket pocket and do you know what I mean? And, and and it's the fact that it's all kind of like, it's all punctuated and it's all tied together by the fact that Tarantino has messed with the time of the movie, the 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 the, the running order of it, the narrative is is split up all over the place. So there's 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 something in that, you know. Um, and I guess that, I guess that ties into the bigger feeling of kind of mortality and life and everything like that and and, and the randomness of it right the the, the yeah. randomness of life and the randomness of these freak events that just occur and i think that was kind of beautifully displayed through the randomness of the timeline yeah and i i yeah. I, I, I sort of i absolutely off the back of watching it had to go back and took like a lot of joy in going back and really trying to piece together the timeline in my mind yeah, because th- there's so much detail in there, and he's so clearly gone to painstaking lengths to make sure that there's this detail that that I sort of I wanted to then go back and be like, okay, I wonder whether that was in the sequence that I remembered it, and that whether that was in the order that I remembered it, um, and I sort of watched a couple of the scenes that have been pieced together on YouTube in chronological order, which is really really cool. Which is just really? like, well, yeah, this is the thing. It's, it's, I'd be interested to know if Tarantino originally set out to make the narrative in that way or if he suddenly thought you know what actually this movie would work better if i did it this way if i jumbled it up in this fashion and at what point yeah. that came in his when it comes of, in yeah. his decision making if he'd written the first draft of the script and suddenly thought <clears throat> i know how i can pep this up or do you know what i mean it just yeah. but like i as you actually say it was, it was it was co-written as well wasn't it yeah so i but i didn't know that i i had no idea about this that it Essentially, it was meant to be three filmmakers. I, I, I this is absolutely horrendous that the the name of the guy who co-wrote it with him um, has left me. I'm going to Google very quickly. I was literally doing uh, the same Roger, thing. Roger now. Avery. <laughs> <laughs> Speed typing. Roger Avery. Now, the, I think the I think the other bit of trivia here 
is that there was going to be three of them that that wrote this. So Roger Avery wrote the gold watch or the golden watch sequence. And Tarantino, I think, wrote the um, Marcellus Wallace wife sequence. And then someone else was supposed to write the the third part, but he just didn't get around to doing it. And they were was it was remakes. it Robert Rodriguez by any yeah, chance? Yeah, I think because so. I know I that so. they collab a lot. Might Quentin well Tarantino have been Robert Rodriguez. And so basically, they 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 write these first two bits and they have it ready to go. And then I think Tarantino ends up because he's like, right, I'm going to do this. I want to do this. He ends up writing the third the third part of it as well. So I don't know how intentional that timeline hopping was, but. It just so works, doesn't it? And I love that sort of thing. I love the manipulation of time in films. I think that's yeah. I, I, it adds a layer in for me that Dunkirk I just absolutely adore. And, you know. <laughs> oh, mate. Oh, t- like uh, uh, this is and the, the chaptering as well. I lo- I do love that about Tarantino. Um, and I suppose we should come on to the the big question because there are some bits of this that probably do need to be flagged. But um, the fine wine war crime. Whose tone is it to go first in this? I can't even remember. Um. Technically, do you want to go first on this? Do you want to? Where do you land on fine wine war crime for this one? Look, I mean, there's there's a lot you can go into with like Quentin Tarantino and stuff. As if we've we've flagged already his kind of his, his the way in which he, his female characters are generally kind of on screen. Although not so much in like something like Inglorious Bastards, you see. But I guess that's one of his later movies. But definitely in this movie, not only with Mia Wallace, but also with butch's um girlfriend mm. i can't yeah. remember what her name is oh, but you know it's fabienne is it okay i want a pot i want a pot <laughs> belly yeah um so i think that's that's a big thing there is obviously the ultra violence there's a very graphic kind of um rape scene which one might be tempted to call gratuitous but i feel is kind of really showing you the sort of the depravity of the characters that they have come into touch with that even by even from watching a movie full of gangsters like you say that are all murdering and killing people and doing whatever they can because they don't want to have day jobs as honey bunny and pumpkin allude to at the start you these people still in comparison to the rest of the people in the movie are stand out as depraved and awful individuals Um, I think as is often flagged with Quentin Tarantino, it is the, I would say, genuinely gratuitous use of the N-word in the movie, which is actually, I think I've always, I don't, I don't even think it's just something that, oh, that hasn't aged well, that is a product of his time. I think even back then, <laughs> Quentin Tarantino was pushing his luck a bit. I, that's just kind of my sort of perspective. I think he's kind of, he's always got that kind of thing of like, you know, I think like we won't get into Django because I know that's a kind of that's a real, you know, a contentious kind of one. A lot of people talk about kind of the, the the amount of times the word is uttered in that movie and whether or not it's kind of supposed to be showing what was going on literally at the time when people of colour were slaves, you know. Um, yeah. But in a movie like Pulp Fiction, I mean, OK, I can understand maybe and, it, you know, again, it's 
I don't feel the violence of the word of the M word, right? Like it, it's not something that affects me, so it's not really my place to say whether or not it gets a pass. But what I'm saying is, I can see from a filmmaking decision, if you're having two depraved, awful rednecks with rednecks with a Confederate flag on their wall, it's conceivable that they might use the N word, right? Somebody like Jimmy, who is Quentin Tarantino's character in the movie, on his monologue. It just feels completely forced and it feels completely unnecessary. Um, and I don't really kind of, okay, maybe if it might be a critique on, because you see kind of Vincent's drug dealer use the word earlier on in the film as well. Is it a critique on middle-class white Americans that they would just so flippantly use a word like that? Perhaps, but even that feels particularly kind, especially, like I say, for Jimmy's monologue at the end, which watching now not only not only for quentin tarantino's acting which like i say love him as a filmmaker think his scripts are great think his movies are brilliant but i'm so glad he stays behind the camera now because his acting is awful it's so appalling um and like i say that but that's that's the least of the concerns in this scene it just felt so forced and it felt like him just pushing his kind of edgy nerd thing a little bit too far and just it, it I, you know i think like we say it's not even about it's not aged well i think even at that time it would have been pretty questionable to 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 use it the six seven eight times he does use it you know yeah i don't know <clears throat> whether so there's a part of me that feels on some level that because he is he is of his time a, a genius and this film is just unbelievably good that sometimes you almost feel like as someone just watching it that you somehow might lose some ability to critique stuff like that i don't know if you know what i mean or i've done a horrible job of explaining it it's like oh well maybe <clears throat> there's a whole load of hidden depth that us mere mortals just don't get that he's making some some point that I just haven't seen, but that that I think the the section that you picked out in particular really really sat uncomfortably with with me, which was his kind of monologue as the character of Jimmy, because it felt to me like a eleven year old or a kid that's been told that's a naughty word, don't say it. Yeah, and then he's like, "Oh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. I'm in a film. I'm you can't get me, can't get me, can't get me, can't get." Me. It had that. It almost had that, like someone flipping two fingers up at people who say you shouldn't say that in films, kind of vibe to it. Is that he's like, "Well, watch me say it ten times, so I can really prove my point." And and if you were actually doing it to make a point and to say <clears throat> that there would be a level of disrespect that that character might have or a disdain for black people that character might have then you perhaps might be like wow he said the n-word you know but to say it that many times to me was just like you don't need to do that that's just mm. that it's just sort of almost bordering on the ludicrous and ridiculous and what was strange was is that i actually felt watching this back watching this film back i was going to be kind of a little bit shook by a number of the other things that we sort of spoke about which was like the the violence, for example, I actually feel like now because of the way that cinemas moved and because of the discussion that we had at the top of the the, the pod, I don't feel like the violence was particularly out of place. I thought that was actually quite 
quite, it, it didn't feel too aggressively gratuitous. It didn't feel like it was too much because there was so much, there was so m- much juxtaposition with the mm. idea of there just being like things like Samuel L. Jackson wanting to wash down a tasty burger with a bit of Sprite and yeah. then murdering three people that you kind of, you were like, well, yeah, like that, th- he, there is a really clear and obvious point there. The, the the kind of the use of the n word. I think honestly, if I was an actor, I would have had a hard time. Uh, I think if I was an actor and, and and I was in that position, and if he had asked me to say it seven times or something in one speech, I'd be like, oh, this just doesn't this doesn't feel right to me. Well, I mean, and this is this kind of is it's pertinent to raise the fact that you know there's a bit of a checkered past of Tarantino's kind of behaviour towards people on set, and mm. you know the way in which he makes people do things even when they're not uncomfortable with it which obviously has culminated in him and Uma Thurman not speaking for about 15 years you know because he made her drive that car in Kill Bill that was clearly not safe to and she crashed and seriously injured herself you know and it's kind of like you say it's because he perhaps falls into that that zone of I'm the little I'm the little emperor here I'm the little king and I you do what I tell you to do because this is my vision and you know, this is kind of what's often said about the kind of the these intensely creative type people, and I don't say it in a in a in a because it gives them a pathway. I think a lot of people do kind of level this. Oh, they're just a creative genius. It's like, well, there's lots of creative geniuses that aren't assholes as well. But I think yeah. maybe some of them get lost in this kind of cult of themselves, really. You know, and I would imagine probably being a guy in his mid to late 20s early 30s i would imagine when he was making pulp fiction he's just had reservoir dogs which is suddenly a huge breakout hit pulp fiction as one like you know the the what do you call it the palm d'or at, at can like he's he's on top of the world he probably feels invincible and like you say there are certain decisions that you wonder if he had somebody that wasn't <laughs> harvey weinstein alongside yeah. him that yeah. might have offered a bit more guidance and a bit kind of reined him in a bit more, you know? Yeah. So. And I, I do feel like that's a, that's a particularly pertinent point for him, for, for Quentin Tarantino. And it's something that listen, I have no idea about the kind of what, what it's like to be on a Quentin Tarantino set. So I can't sort of anything that I would say would just be a, a prediction, but one of the things that you do definitely get the feeling of is that this is a guy that wasn't necessarily the the coolest kid in school, you know, wasn't necessarily mm. the, wasn't, 100%. wasn't like the jock, you know, because often creative types at school, as we all probably have felt at some point, if you work in a creative industry are often sort of overlooked for the, for, for people who might be a little bit more traditionally kind of, I guess alpha in that way, which yep, is obviously yep. a, a bit of a prob anyway. But then when they are suddenly flipped into a situation like he is, where he's standing in front of John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, and Bruce Willis, suddenly as the king of the playground, you, you sort of, I, I can imagine you probably, it's, it's quite easy to lose yourself in your own hubris, you know? It's Revenge of the Nerds, isn't it? That's, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, 100%. It's, it's and I, should, I suppose um, we should also put a little asterisk here in that 
we've kind of just opted not to go down the, the Harvey Weinstein route and opted not to sort of go deeply into that discussion. And then, and, and that kind of is not to say that we don't take that discussion more that the, the kind of horrendous acts that he's committed incredibly mm. seriously, just of, of, for this podcast. I mean, it's maybe one that we'll delve a little bit further into it's another day. It's a podcast or all unto itself, isn't it really? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Should we do the rating? Do you want to know what the ratings were, Ben? I've got them up here from yeah, each of the right. platforms. So, uh, IMDb. IMDb. Yeah. I think this, I remember because we spoke a little bit about this before. I think this is coming in above an eight. I think it's about an 8.3 or something. 8.9. What? 8.9? 8.9, mate. So, this must wanna... be like a top tenner or something or top 20 all time. It's not. It's not. Oh, it's, really? it's ranked. 101 on uh, oh, wow. on IMDb. Yeah, on IMDb, 101. Wow. But what I would say to you now in terms of like uh, IMDb's kind of, from what I can see anyway, they're kind of top movies of all time. It seems to be dominated by like films now is that are just coming out now. Bit of recency bias, yeah. It might be that, and it may just be that people simply are rating films as they watch them. You know, yeah. they're not going back and rating old Well, and also, we do live in an era of, like, the uber five-star rating, don't we? If you don't have, mm. a, if you don't have a five-star, you're instantly, like, redundant sort of thing. It's like, no, it's okay to say something's an eight out of ten. <laughs> you know, it's not, not everything's perfect. That is a... I've, I've, and I'm, again, I'm not just trying to do one of these cultural... I've, you, I've read about this as psychology in it that it's a it's an acutely American thing apparently that something oh, really? is five stars or like one star do you know what I mean yeah. like yeah. It, it, everything else kind of feels redundant apparently anyway when there's a census whereas like they're saying that British people are much more comfortable or Europeans I think are much more comfortable in saying like that was a six out of ten you know, yeah, my you know missus, I mean? my, missus like... my missus was sometimes given Uber driver three stars. And I'm like, what? Yeah. You psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> As if you literally want to give an Uber driver 60%. Unbelievable. Incredible. So, um, Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I will go Rotten Tomatoes. I'll go about 90. 92%. Whish. That's the um, critics. Audience is 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. Just, you know, yeah. See, I actually thought that might be skewed a little bit by the conversation that we just had, that the users might be a little bit lower. Um, what's the last one? Metacritic. Mm -hmm. 92? 95. And again, 95. it's got the little Metacritic achievement uh, badge. Metacritic must see. It's got the badge there, nice and shiny. A little twisty M. Oh man, this was a oh, you should give it R rating. What you uh, what what are you going to give it? Whose turn yeah, is it to on. give it? Your, your turn, mate. Go on. So I'm saying? going to give this a four and a half. Oh, uh, popcorn. So our first, not five stars. So you know me. You know me. It's you're, five stars every time on every movie. Yeah, That's exactly. it. I'm giving it five I'm and a half. <laughs> you can average it out. I'm giving this one four and a half, primarily okay. because. Oh man, and I feel like such a wet willy saying this, but those things that I just I just couldn't get past a couple of those things, the kind of the, the the war crime fine wine things, they really stuck with me, and I almost feel I can hear Purdy in the back of the <laughs> in the back. Of, I like he's not come off mute on the production side of things, but 
I bet he's sitting there like, yeah, the dialogue was too slow. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm, I, I, but that means you can go free for all next week and beat the crap out of my selection. Which is? I am going to go for it. Now, you might have realised, just listening to this, that Jack and I absolutely love doing an impression. Just can't help ourselves. And so I've spent the entirety of this week trying to make sure that I get this choice right. And I really, really wanted to make sure that I came out with a good one. And then I also put into play in my mind, I was like, I need to choose a film that has a, a female character that is sort of actually empowered strong and actually sort of because I'm very aware that it could all, we could also all too easily go down that route of just picking out things that we end up realizing after 10 episodes, you know, you've just picked things that are just straight white men, for example. <laughs> um, uh, so um, there is a, there is a, a male lead, but there's also a female lead in this. And it is very, very much a case of one that we can do impressions of. And I'm going to go for Silence of the Lambs. Oh, mate. Unbelievable. It's literally... Oh, yep, I'm already did. giving it five out of five, mate. It's, it's yeah. one of my favourite movies ever. So, unbelievable. Mate, there's literally... There's so, like, again, it's another one of these. There's so much that we'll just, we won't be able to help ourselves next week. Oh, in mate, terms there's of impression, the Buffalo Bill stuff. Mate. It puts the lotion on its skin. That's yeah. That's oh, what I'm saying. Or else it gets. I don't. Do you know again. what? I don't know where to. I don't. Know, I don't know where it's available to watch. But I'm sure people will will find it. Um, not suggesting for a second that you might need to use alternative means outside of legal streaming services. But um, I'm sure you, people will find you it. You know what? Funnily enough, this is one of those films that I actually own as well. So there no, you go. That's, really? that's where I'm going to watch oh, it. Oh, love it, love it, Aye? love it. Amazing. All right, well, look, I mean, yet again, what a treat. Like, these, this is just so much fun. And if you have listened and you've made it all the way through to our weekly rambling, so it's, it was a joy to, to share it with you. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for, for getting stuck in. We are about, you can get us, you can get us on social media. So make sure you do follow us at BYOB Pod on Twitter and on TikTok. We'll hopefully have I'm not going to be doing any dances or anything. Just I'm just laying that out there now for TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm completely. Me and you of the week will be doing High I'm School a, Musical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so do make sure that you follow us. Um, did you, we, what should we say about getting in touch? I feel bad that we haven't done any comments yet. We need to get an yeah right. So yeah, send us DMs. We need we, we'll get an email address sorted. Look, there's a lot when you're starting out something like this. There's a lot of things, right? There's a lot of plates to spin, but we will get there. We'll get an email address sorted. We will take comments. We'll, we'll do like a mailbag or something like that, won't we? Yeah, you know, a mailbag absolutely. Episode, something like that. You know. But I, as I Ben said, I, thank you for listening. Enjoy. You know. Hope you did enjoy, is what I meant to say. 